This is Science Friday. I'm Flora Lichtman. I'm a host and managing editor at Gimlet Media, and I am very happy to be co-hosting the program this week. And I'm sci-fi producer Charles Bergquist, and we're so happy to have you back. Later in the hour, we'll talk about new research into your cell's telomeres. We'll also talk to researchers compiling a zoo's worth of animal genomes and talk about a museum's dilemma around displaying human remains. But first, a 5-4 to four Supreme Court decision delivered yesterday will restrict the scope of the Clean Water Act, specifically as it relates to the nation's wetlands. Here to tell us more about that decision and other science news of the week is Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American here in New York City. Welcome back to Science Friday. Thank you. Okay, so we've talked about this case before while it was pending, but remind us of some of the details here. So this is a case called Sackett versus EPA, and it deals with restrictions to building and modifying wetlands under the Clean Water Act. And part of what I've been reading on this is that this decision comes down to a sort of technicality sounding thing, a difference between the words adjacent as opposed to adjoining. That's right. So a five to four majority declared that only wetlands that are adjoining a larger stream or lake would get these federal protections. So previously, it's just if it's a wetland, it's protected. These wetlands are often next to a larger body of water. But the new ruling says if it's next to it, but there's not a continuous connection, it doesn't count and it's not protected under the scope of this act. And this means a lot of wetlands are going to lose federal protections. And why is that significant? Why should we care? Wetlands, they're not only these really interesting ecosystems in their own right. They also play a big role in in things like flood mitigation because they can um, take in some of those waters and slow down flooding in the nearby areas. They also improve water quality because they can absorb runoff from farms and other sources. So uh, they, they play this important role in our health and in the quality of the water we drink. And removing the protections means they could be more vulnerable going forward. I see. Speaking of bodies of water, a a curious case of orca behavior off the coast of Spain and Portugal. Orcas are grouping up somehow to attack boats and are even sinking some of them? That's right. So in the past few years, killer whales have started attacking boats. And sometimes these are only minor encounters. You know, there's hundreds of cases of whales kind of swimming up to the, the boats and then maybe exploring around them and then going away. But in about 50 cases in 2020, the orcas made contact with the boat. And in the past three years, there have been three boats that have been so damaged by orca attacks that they actually sank. Wow. I I get this mental image of, you know, some sort of Jaws type chomp right in the middle of the boat. But But it's worse because they're all ganging up together. You know, one of them might go for the rudder. Another one might scrape its teeth along the hull. And they can really do damage. Wow. We keep saying attacking, but do we know whether this is aggression or are they playing with the boat or we don't know? We don't know. They don't seem to be attacking the humans. They don't seem to have a problem with the humans on the boats. It's the boats themselves. And so there's a couple different theories for why are they doing this. So one group has uh, an adult female in it, one of these groups that they've noticed attacking. So it's possible that she had a negative encounter with the boat and now sees the boat itself as a danger. And so has her group attacking it. There's also a group of juvenile whales that have attacked some boats. And so some people say, well, maybe this is a fad, like a teenagers taking on this cool, you know, orca equivalent of a, a Tide Pod challenge. <laughs> 
Uh, and it, this has happened before. So orcas can experience fads. There was a previous case where orcas started wearing, um, I, I don't want to call it a hat, but essentially hats made out of dead salmon. They would be swimming around with this dead fish on their <laughs> head, like a fashion statement. And it was it seemed to be a trend that multiple different uh, individuals were picking up. All the kids are doing it. All the cool kids wear dead salmon. <laughs> Do we know why it's happening now? Is there has there been an increase in boat traffic or anything, or it's just it's one of those weird nature things? It's probably just one of those weird nature things. Maybe one particular whale had a really bad encounter with the boat and started uh, attacking them, and and other whales were like, "This looks fun," and joined in. Maybe a group of juveniles just decided to do it for fun one day, and then others again started uh, spreading the behavior. It's pretty unclear. But it's fascinating. Okay. In some medical news this week, a group of American women contracted fungal meningitis after getting some surgeries in Mexico. What happened there? So fungal meningitis is an infection where a fungus um, can attack the brain and the area around it. And this can be deadly. One of the individuals has died from this fungal infection. And infections are it's hard for them to get to the nervous system. There's a lot of uh, safeguards in the human body. But in this case, it seems that all of the surgeries involved in epidural. So this is where you have an anesthetic injected into the area around the spinal column. So it's possible that that carried a fungal infection that affected these individuals. Yeah. I mean, is this just a cautionary tale for medical tourism or, or is there something deeper that we should be taking out of this? So this kind of uh, outbreak isn't limited to this particular clinic. There have been other cases. So it's not necessarily that this is due to the medical tourism, but it does shine a light on the issue of medical tourism, on the idea that um, some Americans travel out of the country for cosmetic procedures or for other health care because they can't afford it in the U.S. And so by going out of the country, they're no longer in our familiar system of regulations. And so it can be risky. Gotcha. I heard that an amateur astronomer has discovered a star that went supernova from his backyard. Why are scientists excited by this? This is really cool because this uh, this amateur astronomer who's amateur but not new to this, he has discovered uh, almost 200 supernovae since 2000. Wow. So he spotted the supernova pretty early in its development. This is what's called a type 2 supernova. So what's happening out there about 21 million light years away in galaxy M101, the pinwheel galaxy, is this big star, maybe eight times bigger than our sun, is collapsing into itself. And it's in the process of becoming a neutron star or a black hole. And in doing that, it's throwing out all this uh, matter as well as electromagnetic radiation. And it's really cool for researchers and scientists to be able to measure and observe this supernova as it progresses. So as it gets brighter and then starts fading again. And while they're doing that, amateur astronomers uh, with even a backyard telescope can also take a look at it. So it's something the rest of us could see, too, if we went out to our backyards this weekend? Yes. So you're going to want to look near the end of the handle of the constellation known as the Big Dipper or Ursa Major, and the supernova will be a bright spot there. And part of what's cool here is that this amateur was able to catch it pretty much as it was happening, or this is just happening. 
Yes, totally. That's why scientists are really excited. It's not the first time that they've heard of such a supernova or observed it, but this gives them the chance to make continuous observations of it as it progresses and changes. And because it's in a popular corner of the sky, so to speak, they could look at what this area looked like before the supernova happened and then compare it to what it looks like now as the supernova is happening and afterward. So there's lots of data for them to collect. Yeah. And while we're saying as it's happening, as it's happening 21 million years ago. Yes. Yes, exactly. Because this is 21 million light years away, it's 21 million years in the past, but we're just seeing it now. Oh, I'm looking forward to doing some stargazing this summer, but forecasters are saying that it seems we might be due for an El Nino year for the first time in 10 years. Remind me what those are and how they factor into this whole trend of warmer summers that we've been seeing lately. So an El Nino is um, a phenomenon, a weather phenomenon, where the waters of the eastern Pacific get hotter than usual. And then this has a sort of butterfly effect on the rest of the planet. That extra heat uh, changes the air flows and circulates around the world, and it also ends up increasing overall global temperatures. So an El Nino makes a hot summer, what, what might have already been a hot summer, even hotter. And the fact is that our summers are getting hotter. We're seeing more heat records broken. There was a heat record just recently broken in, in Western Canada for this time of year. And it wasn't just broken by a few tenths of a degree. It was broken by about 12 degrees Fahrenheit. So it was 12 degrees above the highest previously measured temperature, but it was also 40 degrees above the average temperature for this time of year in that area. Yikes. How does this affect different parts of the country differently? So in places that are used to hot summers and hot weather, there tends to be a lot of air conditioners installed. There tends to be an infrastructure in place that is is built to deal with the heat. But in places like the Pacific Northwest or Western Canada, which was affected in the, the recent heat wave, they don't have that same kind of infrastructure in place. So people are less likely to have air conditioners. People are less likely to be familiar with what they can do to mitigate that heat when it hits. And so it's more of a, of a shock to the air. Area, and it tends to uh, that tends to kill people. So finally, an infrastructure story of a different kind using recycled diapers instead of sand in concrete. I love this idea. So researchers in Japan found that you can shred up disposable diapers, which are often made of you know wood pulp, cotton, even absorbent polymers. All of these ingredients can be used in concrete. So they washed the diapers and shredded them and used them as an ingredient in concrete. And they they were trying to figure out just how much of the sand in concrete can you replace with diapers before it starts to lose some of its uh, strength and ability to be used in buildings. And I mean, that leads to the obvious big question. I mean, can I have a towering castle made of recycled diapers? So this is another interesting thing. Concrete is used in buildings in different ways. So if it's used as a structural element, you've got to have a pretty low proportion of diapers because these structural elements like columns and beams, they need to be very strong to support your proposed castle. As opposed to architectural elements, if you're using it for like a wall panel or a brick, you can use a higher proportion of diapers, uh, up to 40%, because it doesn't need to be as strong. So for instance, let's say you're building a one-story house. You could replace about 27% of the sand and the concrete with diapers. But if you want just a 
three-story house, not that crazy, you can only use 10% diaper in your concrete. And I imagine if you want a castle even bigger than that, the percentage would continue to drop. Very good information to have. I will keep that in mind for this weekend. (laughs) For your house building. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much, Sophie. It's always great to talk to you. You too. Thanks. Sophie Bushwick is a technology editor for Scientific American based in New York City.